Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Devorah Blacker, New York Times Motherlode columnist, and her new book is The Feminist Guide to Raising a Little Princess, How to Raise a Girl Who's Authentic, Joyful, and Fearless, Even If She Refuses to Wear Anything But a Pink Tutu. Devorah Blacker offers insight and humor to all those who cringe each morning when their daughters refuse to wear anything that isn't pink. Using personal antidotes and playful essays, she explores how mothers can raise their daughters in a society that pressures girls and women to bury their own needs, conform to unrealistic beauty standards, and sacrifice their own passions. Uh, Devorah writes for the Huffington Post, Red Book Magazine, Mommyish, Good House keeping and many more welcome to the show nice to have you on this morning devorah thank you for having me well i guess the first question most people or many ask you and i'm going to ask the question what inspired you to write this book in the first place well a few years ago when my daughter went down the disney princess rabbit hole and i was initially mortified and uh, worried you know and had my parental react my over parental reaction to it i wrote a satire a satirical essay kind of to work through my own conflict and it was called turn your princess obsessed toddler into a feminist in eight easy steps and it was tongue-in-cheek because you can't convince a toddler to do much of anything especially um you know uh, <laughs> convince them to to enter into an academic discussion about feminism, right. but I wrote it and the New York Times accepted it, uh, which was great, and the piece went viral, and uh, and I never I never wrote something that had that kind of response. Just the volume, the intensity. People reached out to me from all over. Um, they had read it. They had related to it. They thought it was funny but it also tapped into something that they were going through. So I realized it was this um, uh, widespread phenomenon of people like me who have these little girls who love princesses and we're trying to figure out what it all means. And, you know, while this was all happening, I was reading up on the subject and I was researching it and I was reading social science, um, you know, the social science literature and, um, and research that had been done on it, and I was coming to some conclusions about it, so I wrote a book proposal, and it sold, and here I am. It's a great story, and also, I guess, uh, it's a a great story that resonates, as you say, with, I guess, probably millions of women around the world, right? I mean, this is just something that, I guess it so surprises me, because I am a baby boomer, obviously, uh, you're a, what, Gen X, I am Gen X, yeah. Yeah. I'm Gen X, and I grew up with the different model princesses, but go ahead, Catherine, what were you saying? Well, I was going to say, it, your your generation was the, the Barbie doll thing, wasn't it? I, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, oh, yeah. I grew up with a basement full of Barbie dolls, but my generation, generation also grew up with, you know, what I call the sleepy trio, I mean, you know, so did yours, right? The sleepy trio of Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. Uh, these very passive, regressive princesses. And actually, after those three Disney films, Disney took a long break from princess films. So that that was imprinted on our consciousness of what the 
princesses were. So when my daughter got into them, I didn't know about these newer princesses. I was just associated them with these old regressive stories. And also, you know, I, I never was into princesses as a little girl. Um, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a more gender neutral, friendly time, let's say. And, um, even though there were girls around me who were into it, it just didn't, you know, I was more of a tomboy kind of a, a kid and I never liked the color pink. So it was just surprising to have this, this, um, this kid <laughs> who was so passionate about these things. So um, where did it come it, from? It's like in her DNA. I, or hopefully it's not right. But uh, it, 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 I think it, it is, is partially in the, it's partially in the DNA, but it's not just, it's, it's, um, there is a percentage of girls that, that do gender identify with the frilly and, you know, the, the traditionally feminine stuff. Um, and there's a percentage of girls who don't, but what has changed over the years is the marketing of Disney princesses and the marketing of pink and, you know, and everything feminine to girls. That is something that is relatively new, um, Peggy Orenstein wrote a book called Cinderella Ate My Daughter. I forget what year it came out. And she reported, she, she originally reported that in the year 2000, a Disney executive went to a Disney on ice show and saw little girls dressed in homemade princess dresses. If you can imagine, this was so recently. And he knew that there was an opportunity and something to tap into. And that was in the year 2000. And now, here we are, 17 years later, the Disney Princess brand is one of the biggest brands um, in, in uh, merchandising. I think it, it alternates with Star Wars for number one and two um, in terms of profit. It's huge. And so that phenomenon, coupled with this tendency that some girls and boys do have um, to love princesses, uh, really exploded into this phenomenon of these little girls who are just, you know, drenched in pink and tutus and tiaras. <laughs> and, and it's all around us, you know. So it's being marketed to these girls and they're being targeted. And then it's also tapping into something which is, um, yeah, I can't deny it, it is DNA. You know, it's in, it's in um, some girls. And um, so it's this interesting confluence of those two, those two things together. Yeah, it is. I mean, this guy or this uh, Disney executive, uh, I mean, this is like a, a phenomenal marketing tool, as you say, 2000. Okay, so then you have your daughter who's three years old. How did she tap into it? You know, you're a feminist. You're coming from a completely different, you know, 180 from all of that stuff. So how did it happen with, with your three-year-old that she was like into so, the pink and wanting to, yeah. Right, yeah. So I, I didn't have anything like that in my house. And, you know, all her clothing was, you know, yellow or blue or red or green, you know, just all the colors. Or most of it was just hand-me-downs from my son, you know, because why, why bother buying new clothes? Um, but when she was two, she got a book from my in-laws. It was called Once Upon a Princess. And it had the Disney princesses on the cover. And it had little buttons on the side with little tunes that you could play. And she loved the book in a very instant and passionate way. And she, for a, a time, she would only read that book. And around the same time, she started a preschool program just a few hours a day. But it was her exposure 
to the princess merchandising. She saw princess backpacks and water bottles and T-shirts and princess dresses. The preschool had princess dresses for dress-up. And she loved all of it. Instantly, passionately, and she really wanted to wear the color pink as she, you know, as the months passed. Um, and, you know, it's a, the book, just, you know, in my book, I describe how I went from zero to, <laughs> to living in a princess castle. But, um, you know, there were small compromises I made at the beginning. But also as I researched it and I saw that this wasn't going to doom my daughter into, um, into giving up all her, her dreams, you know, um, and entering into a traditional female or limiting herself to traditional female roles, I also opened up to the possibility that this was not harmful to her. And, um, and I, I started to get into it a little bit too. <laughs> I have to admit well, it's interesting because, you know, I grew up uh, and was a, I wouldn't say a, a tomboy, but didn't get it, wasn't into the pink of the frilly or that kind of stuff. But uh, but I had, there was always that difficulty growing up with two brothers, you know, well, they can do this because they're boys and you can't because you're a girl. And then I had three boys and I was I have to admit, I was so excited because I thought, I'm not going to have to deal with all this stuff. I, I sort of I got by with, you know, I've got three boys. I'm not going to have to deal with the, the princess stuff. And then I had a grandson. And so I feel like <laughs> I, um, I'm in a position where I've really never, uh, that's why I'm fascinated with your book, because I never really had to, to, to deal with that. I mean, I gave my boys, this is sort of the opposite of what you did, but I remember I gave them a doll to play with. And, you know, two days later, they had beheaded her. So I decided they had, <laughs> it was, and they're really, <laughs> it was, um, and they're really nice guys now. They're not, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so. They're, it's sort of the same thing, I guess. Um, and um, I, I guess I just still don't understand it. Like, why? Now you're. This happened when your daughter was three. Okay, so you've had how many years to like see what the consequences of this princess stuff has been? You know, for her, done with her. We have been living with the princesses for three years now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, one thing that I I read about over and over again is that in most cases. This is a phase that passes, and um, it passes in grade school, elementary school, whatever you call it in America. <laughs> I yeah. live overseas, and um, and I'm starting to see it. She still loves princesses, so she hasn't given it up by any means. But she do, she has expanded her world and her passions and her interests, and um, and I can just see that the girls who were a few years older than her, who used to be really into princesses, have, you know, it's finished. They now, you know, once they get a little older, they start to associate it with being a baby because it really is something that taps into this toddler stage. And um, so not all girls give it up. I, I, for my book, I contacted a lot of young women who, who used to identify as princess obsessed. So not all of them give it up, but most of them do. And they move on. And, um, and then it's just something that happened <laughs> when they were three to seven years old, let's say. Well, and that depends on the parents, doesn't it? Or de- depends on the mothers? Like if there are mothers who sort of, I mean, those who admire the princess stuff. So those girls go on to, yeah. That's a good uh, question. The, That's yeah. a good question. I mean, you know, right. That, that, um, 
that presupposes that we have influence over them. But, <laughs> but I mean, I can tell you that, you know, I, like in theory, I would have never enabled this, but in practice, that's exactly what I ended up doing because she loved it so much and it brought her so much joy. And I really saw that it came from deep inside her. It wasn't something that was created by Disney. Disney did tap into it, but it was something that really brought her joy. Um, but as far as whether it depends on the parents, I'm sure that's true in some cases. My sister loved princesses as a kid. She raised all her kids on a very Disney-heavy diet because she still loved it and she still loved the magic. And she definitely, you know, she had three boys and a girl. Her girl was very into princesses but gave it up. So, so um, she didn't remain in this uh, <laughs> tiara-wearing stage. Just because her home was open and warm to it, she also moved on and is now a freshman in college. Well, that's good to hear. That's a good yeah. story. Uh, yeah. So you talk about also, like, how do you, you know, all, I mean, those, as we, you know, those sexist messages that are associated with all this princess stuff. How do you, in you know, you don't, your daughter was like, she embraced it. She loved dressing, you know, all the princess stuff. But on one level, you must have been giving your other messages, I guess, like, so that yeah. she did. Yeah. And, and what were they? And how'd you do that? Yeah, well, not it. So, you know, one of the reasons I wrote that essay is because you can't really do that at age three. That's a little too early. But I would say around age five and certainly now she's six, we talk about the princess stories, the the regressive princess stories, you know, and how how it used to be for women and how their only way out of a bad situation was through marriage and how unfair that was. And she you know, that really resonated with her. She understood why that was not okay. And, um, and it's, you know, it's just about looking at the stories with um, an analytical eye and a critical eye. So, you know, we can try and teach our children to, to look at the stories and ask questions about them and come up with their own uh, interpretations or, you know, you know, or the stories behind the stories. And the positive thing is I have to give Disney some credit because in recent years, they've made some princess movies with really good role models and really good stories. Um, so for a princess obsessed girl, it doesn't end at Cinderella anymore. It, okay. um, the, the newer movies are pretty good. I can't, um, <laughs> I can't disparage them. They were written like, by, yeah, like Moana is a super story. Um, What's but, Dora but the Explorer? Is that one? <laughs> Dora the Explorer? Is she, is she <laughs> or is that not? I see that, yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. No, Dora is not a princess. And in fact, actually, unfortunately, I'm sad to say that my daughter rejected Dora. And I think it was because she wasn't a princess. And I know from when my son watched it, it was a really nice show. I mean, it was insipid and annoying for adults, but it was very nice in the sense that she was always discovering something and uh, she's a very intelligent little character, you know, she was a really good character, but yeah, she's not a princess. No. <laughs> I wonder how Dora's doing now. Yeah. <laughs> I but yeah. Mari rejected Dora, sadly. Now, Devorah, you have a daughter and then you said you have a son as well, right? Yeah, my son is 10 and Mari is 6 now. All right, so let's talk about him in relation to his sister and, and the princess stuff. How did, well, was there any, you know, how did, 
How did that work? Uh, he did also, he- I would say, gender identified. You know, it sounds like more like you know your boys um, <laughs> that he just rejected it based on the, the fact that he perceived it as a girl thing. Even though I said, you know, you could like you could like them too. I mean, he will watch some of the movies with her um, sometimes, but he definitely categorizes it as a girl thing. So I would say, like, he he rejects it without, you know, without really being open to any of the stories, you know, even the, the, the modern ones, which are some of them are really good films. So that's, you know, that's the flip side, which... You know, he's 10 now, and I would also like him not to be limited by notions of what it means to be male. And, you know, this is parenting today. We're trying to to open things up for our kids and, and compete with the culture sometimes um, and try and give them different models. And, you know, we're, on any given day, we just do the best we can. <laughs> That's well. That's all you can do is the best you can. That's true. But how do you think we're doing? I mean, I guess I, you know, I look over the say the past twenty or thirty years. Are we getting anywhere with it? I mean, in terms of women's roles. I mean, and you know, in terms of raising our daughters so that they they are strong women and stick up for themselves Mm -hmm. and you know and successful and have all the same opportunities so that your daughter will have the same opportunities as your son, which I still don't you know, doesn't exist today. I mean, right. uh, yeah. Uh, where are we going well, as with you all? Know, as yeah. you know, there's enormous progress and then there's enormous backlash, right? That's what we're seeing today, I think. And, you know, and we're, we see yesterday, I was asked on, a, on a, another radio show, can you tell our viewers why they shouldn't fear feminism? And I thought, oh, <laughs> Really? Oh, don't fear the word feminism. You know, just the, the idea that, that the word feminism ever became associated with something negative. You know, there's nothing fearful about people wanting the same opportunities as every, everyone else, right? Um, so, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I'm, I'm positive and despairing in equal measures, you know, depending on the day, um, because... Like I said, we've seen enormous progress, but we've also seen backlash. And um, we, I, you know, we just want to let our daughters know what's going on out there, what the pitfalls could be, give them the tools to cope with it. But no, we haven't, we haven't fixed this, have we? But, no, we haven't. Um, and I, I think I the feminist... The, the feminism, interrupting you, but I think that question about the femi- feminism sort of took on this character that feminism was angry, in my generation, angry and mean and nasty and uh, it had all these negative con- connotations, which I guess still exists, or j- just using the word feminism for some reason. It's like, you know, that that's a, a negative thing, that it's um, something not positive. Uh, so, right. right. I yeah. mean, you see that with any kind of... of- um, human rights or civil rights movement where people are asking for their rights is always this backlash and this effort to depict the people who are asking for their rights as angry, radical, you know, over the top. And of course, no, you know, I, I don't know any, any radical feminists. <laughs> I only know very mild manner, reasonable people who, who just want their daughters to have their sa- the same opportunities as their sons, and they they also want to expand that opportunity to 
to all, all the groups who have been traditionally left out. So what do you do on a daily basis? Let's say, I know in the beginning of the interview, you were saying, well, it was it was your in-laws who gave your daughter the the princess book who started this. Well, I'm not blaming them, but anyway, they're the ones who gave her the book and she was, <laughs> oh my God, this is great. So what, because you have, you know, as mothers, you do what you do within your family, but now, you know, kids go to school and relatives and friends, and obviously they have different perspectives. So on a daily basis, what do you now, what do you deal with in terms of making sure that she does have a good sense of herself and that she doesn't see herself as a second class citizen and all of those kinds of things that, you know, impact on a, on a, on a young, on a girl now today. So what do you do? Like, or what do well, you have is, to contend with? Yeah. This is a really delicate age, I think, because this is the age where girls start to start to feel bad about their appearance. I know it's early, but this is what I've read, that this is the age where girls actually start to feel bad about their appearance and their body, and, um, and, and that gets worse and worse as adolescence progresses. Um, so I'm just at the beginning of it, and I don't know the complete answer to that question. My daughter thinks she is amazing. She feels powerful. She feels beautiful. She feels like she can do anything. And it's a little heartbreaking because I know what's coming, and I can't control all of it. I can't control everything that's going to be said to her and every image she's going to see. Um, but the, I, I feel like the best I can do is let her know what's coming, let her know that there's going to be people and images and advertisements and marketing campaigns that are going to be trying to make her feel like she's not enough and that she's going to need to change, she's going to need to be quiet, she's going to need to buy things, whatever it is those messages are. And I just want to let her know that it's coming. And she's still, you know, she's, it's, it's, it's weird because she's still too young to really have a deep conversation about that. She's just a few years away. But at the same time, this is the age where it's, you know, these things start to imprint on the psyche. So I don't know the full answer to that question yet. I, I would like to let her in on these secrets of, you know, what's, what the messages are going to be and also try to give her as much as I can a lot of love and patience and compassion and acceptance so that she can have, you know, she can have the tools of, of resilience um, and, you know, that feeling of, of self-love, I hope, to take her through these, these very tricky years. And we all went through it. I don't think they're easy for anybody, um, but I'm just in the beginning of it. So let's talk again in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> see, how you have a- see how we're doing. You have a challenge ahead of you, but I think the, and I think you just touched on it. I mean, you, you building those feelings of self-esteem based on things that have a lot of substance, whether it's intelligence or it's uh, athletics or it's music yeah. or whatever it is. Right. And then I think when you that have that, so yeah, yeah, it's a real. That's right. That's develop, sorry to interrupt you, but yes, you absolutely. Developing other interests is really important. Everything that I've read indicates that an interest in sports is very good. We definitely are encouraging sports in our house um, and I hope that Mari gets into it I can't control it all I can do is open it up but you know having a lot of different passions interests that's really good for any kid and adult right so um, so yeah um, thanks for for raising that because that is that's key as we go forward yeah 
It is key. And, and it makes you much less vulnerable when someone tells you, you know, you're five pounds overweight or your hair looks horrible or whatever it is. Because uh, if you have all the other stuff, uh, which is much stronger and really does create that that resilience, um, I think it, it really becomes a lot easier not to succumb to that other that perfectionism is, is an issue with women. I think you mentioned that too in the book, but that that trying to live up to some ideal that doesn't exist and right, is, and yeah. the princesses tap into it, and that's one that was one of my points of concern that this was like the beauty ideal, the ideal of perfection that was being foisted upon my daughter, but actually when they're very little, they. You know, I think unless something has gone wrong, I think they see themselves as princesses and as as perfect as a princess. So it's just later that um, those other messages come in. Well, the other thing is your daughter has the advantage of you. I mean, you are a role model for her just in the sense of what you do and how influential you are and the impact that you have on other women and, and, and just all the work that you've done. So. There she One is. Hope. One yeah. hopes. We'll see. I don't. You know. Or she'll hate you try. for it. <laughs> or she, you, you never, <laughs> never know what's going to happen, right? Uh, yeah. So just uh, we have a few minutes left, though. How does your husband or your partner fit into this? I think he plays a really important role because, um, first of all, how you know how he views his daughter, the time he spends with his daughter, how he views me. The support that he gives me in my career is very significant. He's really a um, very supportive partner, very encouraging. Um, and uh, he, he deeply also wants the same thing for her, So he's, which is to have the, the same opportunities that, that our son would have and not be um, held back by gender. So he's very into this subject. He loves to read and hear about all of this stuff and the research so I'm really happy about that. He's definitely on board. He has no, no reservations, <laughs> no toxic masculinity in being imposed by him on any of this. So, um, so that's really positive. And that is key, I think, for a lot of, of uh, girls as they grow up, the role of, of the males around them. Is there any one thing that you've done that you think, I mean, it hasn't been that long, as you say, I mean, she's still, your daughter's still very young, that you would say, mm, I did make a mistake there, I wish I hadn't done that? I, you know, I think my mistakes are not princess related, you know, I, for me, the, the things I regret are judging my kids, I, you know, a few, you know, I can remember times when I, when I yelled at them, when I felt like I, mean, I really shouldn't have done that, so... For me personally, it's more about cultivating patience, acceptance, and compassion for them. And I feel like I'm the best mother I can be when I really accept them and, um, and I, I let them be who they are without that you know, need to control or change them. So it's, it's associated because I think that originally when this princess thing started, I was thinking I could control Mari and you know, get it out of our house and <laughs> you know, not let in the pink. Um, so one of the things I talk about in my book is confronting that need to control and thinking, you know, thinking that I always, you know, that it was, that everything was going to be up to me, um, to decide things for my kids. But no, of course, you know, we, they, they are their own people and they develop because of us, in spite of us, alongside of us. So, um, 
so the worst thing I've ever, you know, one of the, the biggest mistakes is controlling them. And one of the best things I've done is just letting it go and giving up that control. That's well said. And that's our, and I think that's, we have to say goodbye. We have 30 seconds left, so we're going to leave it at that. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. And I, I do want to mention the book again, because you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. The Feminist Guide to Raising a Little Princess, How to Raise a Girl Who's Authentic, Joyful, and Fearless, Even If She Refuses to Wear Anything But a Pink Tutu. And uh, we've been talking to Devorah Blacker today. Thanks so much for being here. Give us a website. Thank we you can very much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Emma Johnson, award-winning personal finance journalist and author of The Kick-Ass Single Mom, Be Financially Independent, Discover Your Sexiest Self, and Raise Fabulous Happy Children. After her husband moved out, leaving her broke, pregnant, and home alone with a toddler and another baby on the way, Emma Johnson couldn't find the advice she needed to thrive as a single professional woman and parent. But just two years later, Johnson was a successful entrepreneur, providing this much-needed advice to other single moms on her immensely popular blog, Wealthy Single Mommy. She's an award-winning business and personal finance journalist former AP finance staff reporter and MSN money columnist. And as an expert, she's been on CNN. New York, she's written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Emma. Thank you so much, Catherine. 
Okay, so the kick, who is the kick-ass single mom? Uh, you are. Are there lots of them out there? <laughs> <laughs> there are. There are so many out there. I've been doing this work for five, more than five years now, and it is, you know, I found my own success. I really found, like, me personally, that I really stepped into my own when I became a single mom. That's my journey. But I have been delighted to meet so many incredible women out there that are really just living life on their own terms and not buying into what the world kind of tells us that we're doomed to this inadequate subpar life because we're unmarried moms. And instead they go out and do these incredible things and whatever that means to them, but they're really just living really full lives. And I didn't give the stats, but 40, you 40% of babies are now born to unmarried mothers, which themselves comprise 50% of millennial women. Is that correct? That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Is that, well, no, yeah. So 40% babies overall, but of course, younger women are the women having babies. And we know that uh, 67% of millennial moms will have at least one baby outside of, outside of marriage. So this is the new norm. And it has been for years now. We know that for the last three, four years, that traditional nuclear June Cleaver family, that's been the statistical minority in the United States. And the biggest part of the new majority is single parent households. This is, this is really just how people are choosing to configure their families. So how old were you when this happened? When you have one, you have a toddler, you have a baby on the way, husband leaves. How old were you? Yeah. So I was 33 years old, 33. I was, uh, you know, I had my babies when I was 31 and 33 and I was, yeah, I was a new mom and um, I, no one sees it coming, right? And that's the funny thing about this is that I was raised by a single mom. I was committed to do, you know, doing things the right way because I was convinced that was what was going to make me happy and have a fulfilling family life. And then, you know, my story, in a way it's anomalous and in a way it's not at all, but incidentally, my, my story ended uh, tragically. My marriage ended tragically. My husband had a a brain injury and really destabilized and our lives unstabilized and our marriage destabilized. And it was just a whole lot of crisis in a very short amount of time. Um, So no one could have seen that coming for sure. But the thing is that's still striking to me. We're in like fourth decade of mass divorces. We know marriage rates are low. As we said a couple minutes ago, that young women are choosing not to get married and having, there's really a a decoupling of the idea of having babies in marriage. They are kind of two separate processes now in people's minds and in their lives. But yeah, when we become single moms and partnered moms, it's still usually a surprise. Like it's still the common um, thing I hear from women is, gosh, you know, I never thought I'd, I'd be here. I never saw this happening. So, you know, I think it's time. We've been doing this for so long now. It's time to say this is an extremely likely chance that you will be an unmarried parent. So how can we plan for that? You know, many people do go on and have long and happy marriages, and that's one path. But the other path is that you're going to be an unmarried parent. So how can we uh, expect this? How can we plan for it? And if this is your, your path, how do you make the most of it? Well, you say make the most of it. And do you think that that's, it sounds a little negative to me? Like maybe this is something that's positive. Like you just said, there are different paths to take. One, you can be married and, you know, with kids or not or single uh, so that it could take a more positive spin rather than this is your lot in life. Yeah, it's funny. I heard myself saying that and (laughs) I didn't like it coming out of my mouth. I've done 
like dozens, hundreds, like I've done a, like, literally more than 150 interviews promoting yeah. this book alone. Uh-huh. It's funny that came out because I don't think I've ever said that because it is positive. You know, I, know, I certainly never take the stance that single motherhood is the better than other forms of motherhood at all. It happens to suit me very well. And I think a lot of moms really love being single moms for lots of reasons, which I'd be happy to talk about. But it's, um, but I think though, though I do always want to honor that, especially if you're going through a divorce or a big breakup, if your plan A was to be a married mom or a partnered mom and you find yourself not, it is a trauma. It really is. And that doesn't mean that the end is not going to be really wonderful or that you find that this is your path. But in the short term, I don't ever want to diminish that. I mean, it is a loss. It is a loss of what you thought your life wanted to look like. It's often a loss of a relationship, even if that was a horrible relationship, an abusive one or a traumatic one, it's still, it is a loss. And so I think we need to do honor, honor that loss before we can move on. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about it. It is a crisis in one's life. Definitely. So what are some of the, what do women have to face when, when that happens, no matter why or how, but it does happen. It's a crisis. We want to be resilient. And what, what issues do you have to, conf- does one have to confront? Well, the number one thing is always money. It's always money. And I don't care if you're filthy rich, you're going to have less money in the short term. And you feel that. You feel the change. And, and the reality is that the poverty rates for single parent families are uh, double that of married households. And it's no wonder why. There's, despite our fantasies and obsessions with the stay-at-home mom, the vast majority of moms work, even inside of marriages. And so there's that loss of that second income in the home. And even if there's only one income in the home, there's a second loss of the second set of hands. And, you know, I hear a lot of moms say, well, you know, my ex-husband didn't, or my ex-partner didn't help around the house. It's all on me anyways. And I, I respect that, and I, I believe that to be true. But there is something to be said. In an emergency, there's that second person there. In a pinch, there is that second. And so it is a big adjustment in terms of time and money, which are intrinsically linked. So... Th- Really, I'm such a huge fan of living minimally. I don't care how much money you have. Having a house that's really no bigger than what you need, uh, a lifestyle that is inside of your budget now, not what your lifestyle was before you split up or your lifestyle before you had kids or what your neighbors you think that they can afford because, P.S., they probably can't. But what you see on Instagram, that's not the lifestyle. The lifestyle is what is your income, what are you earning now, and then you build your lifestyle around that. And that's a seismic shift for most people because that's not how most Americans manage their finances. We're all over leveraged on our home, uh, consumer debt, student debt, living in increasingly large homes. I mean, I, I don't know how old. I'm 41 years old. When I grew up, people had old cars. We had an old hoopty that was rusted out. Uh, there's no old cars on the road anymore. They're all new because consumer financing is so available. We just finance the newest car that we can. So it's really challenging people to live outside of, of social norms that tell you to go into debt, really. Um, so that's the first thing, because I'm telling you, if you don't have a grip on your finances, if you're living paycheck to paycheck or scrambling to make credit card bills, you're not making your best decisions. You're not building a career in a way that is from a place of power and confidence. You're not dating from a place of confidence. You're looking for another baby daddy or connecting with men for lots of reasons that are often attached to money in a negative way. And you're not your best mom if you're stressed out and worried about the bills every day. So I really so if, want everyone, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, so how, there are certain women who obviously maybe do it more easily than others. How, the women that you, that you are, that you know, or you've been in contact with, you know, through your book, through your blog, what are the characteristics? Who are the women who seem to be able to do what you're saying? And, and who are the ones who get, and get bogged down and, and are not able to keep it simple, live the lifestyle that they're able to afford? Like, what are some of the characteristics of women who are able to do this, able to. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, sure, the qualities of the single moms who really thrive. Yeah, they're the ones that are living in reality when it comes to their money. So when one great, my favorite anecdotes in uh, the Kick-Ass Single Mom, my book, this mom, she, she's like, we were living, when I was married, we lived in this big, I think it was like a six-bedroom Tudor house. This nice community. And they split up, and she and her teenage daughters moved into like a, two or three bedroom rental. They were sharing one bathroom, which was a huge adjustment. And keep in mind, all of their old friends lived in, you know, six bedroom Tudor houses. Like this was a big lifestyle adjustment. And she's like, you know what? But here's the thing. I paid for that house. That was my little rental. I had control over it. No one could tell me how to decorate it, how to run it. And after, you know, the idea was that it was going to be short term until she got on her feet after this breakup. But, you know, a year or two later passed, her finances greatly improved. She's like, you know what? I came to love living so simply, not having to manage all the stuff in a big house, not having to clean it. They connected with this new neighborhood that they were in. She didn't love sharing a bathroom, one bathroom with her two teenagers, but she's like, you know what? My new, and it was hers. It was her money. She had total control over her life, and they ended up staying there even though she could afford something bigger. So that is one of my favorite stories. Um, and the other qualities, again, exemplified in this woman I just told you about, making your own money. When I see women coming out of relationships and they're spending all of their energy trying to get alimony, chasing down child support, which statistically we know that less than half of child support that is owed that's mandated by the courts is actually paid. So instead of putting their energy and trying to get money out of a man, they recalibrate and focus on their own careers, their own businesses, building income and a life and a career that they're passionate about that's going to afford them the lifestyle that they want and that they're proud of that to model for their kids. Those are the women that I see really leaning into this new phase of life and thriving. I think that is so critical. I mean, this last point that you just made, because spending your time and your energy trying to get, and it's a lot of money, you spend your, not just time and energy, but you spend your money with lawyers trying to get money from that you're never going to get, uh, is is really so detrimental, as you say, like it's much better to figure out how you're going to earn money on your own and, and you feel good about it, obviously. And uh, because I think that's probably a huge problem. I mean, I think that that certainly in my mm. generation that existed, but uh, as you say, it still does even, you know, in even today, which is uh, a waste of time. So no, it is. Yeah. And it's a real challenge. I mean, what I'm really calling women to do is to be activists. As you come out of a relationship, our cultural paradigm tells you, you just fight that bastard for all he's worth and get what you can because he owes you and you fight for those kids and you keep those kids and he doesn't deserve to see his kids. There's so many things wrong with that. That is what all of your friends and family are going to pressure you to do. And that's an overstatement, but that's our cultural norm. That's definitely what your lawyer is going to pressure you to do. And they have a financial interest in telling you that. So let's dial this back. When we talk about um, 
co-parenting. There is incredible work that is being done in academics, research, advocacy work. There's a great organization called Leading Women for Shared Parenting. And they're going state by state. They've introduced legislation, and I think they're up to 28 states now, where the, the legislation proposes that the default custody agreement is 50-50, shared parenting. So that means that each parent is presumed to be competent because we know that fathers are just as good as parents as moms and that uh, they both get equal time with the kids. So approximately 50-50. We're living in the real world where we don't want to be too rigid about it, but it's at least 40% of time. So when you have that, we know there's 55 peer-reviewed articles, studies, that show that shared parenting is what is best for kids. Even, this is most interesting to me, even in high-conflict situations. So we want those kids to be actively involved with both their parents. And one of the most beautiful byproducts of this is that it's good for the parents. Of course, dads want to be involved with their kids. We know that. But moms then are, they're, we're unburdened with this task of being the full-time mom. That is just, from a feminist point of view, from a gender equality point of view, we have got to unshackle ourselves with this presumption that we have to be with our kids all the time. There's no research to support that's what kids need. And there's plenty of research to support that moms need to be out working, earning, achieving, exercising, earning money, dating, being, contributing to our community, being spiritual people, sexual people. When we are living full lives, that is so much easier to do when we have a great co-parent that not only has time with the kids as much time as we do, but they're also there just to be flexible. I mean, I know, and I can tell you first, I mean, I have gone 180 on this myself. When I stood up, as I mentioned, we went through this huge family trauma. I was, it was really, it was so traumatic. My babies were being born. They were nursing. And all of a sudden, my ex-husband, who, by the way, had, he was recently out of a brain injury. And he wanted to have the kids overnight. And I was like, that's insane. Like, who would ever agree to that? And I fought it. And I, and I, all of my, my attorney is like, look, you know what? He's never been unsafe with the kids. The judge is going to sympathize, sympathize with a father who wants to be actively involved. And you're just going to have to let this go. And I couldn't believe it. I literally remember at one point getting out my calculator and calculating how, what percentage <laughs> of time the kids would be away from me because it was so, and they were so tiny too. And again, we were going through this trauma. Well, and my husband for years, my ex-husband was, he was, he was unstable. He, and for no fault of his own, he went through a brain trauma. Best word to today were what, eight years outside of this thing. He is back to work. He's actively involved with the kids, totally stable. We're just able to co-parent really beautifully. I'm very busy with my career. He takes, it's not only the hours he takes, that I can come up, I'm like, you know what, I have to go out of town for work for a few days. Can you take the kids? And he does. I don't have to scramble to find a babysitter, fly a relative in from out of town to take care of the kids. He just takes them. It is the most wonderful thing in the world. He called me the other day. He needs to go out to California for a family emergency. He needs me to take the kids during his normal time. I'm happy to do that because it's going to come back around. It is so wonderful when you have that, and there's a financial byproduct of that. He is free to pursue a career because he has me as backup. I am free to pursue a career and earn because I have him as backup, and we're able to work together, and it's so good for all of us. 
Yeah. So you have to give up those old, one has to give up those expectations. And I think women particularly that I should be there all the time. It's my responsibility to take care of the kids. I'm the only one who can do it. Mm. It's hard to do. Yeah. It, that's really hard to do. Like you were saying, you sat down and you're writing down exactly how many <laughs> minutes they are with you and how many minutes with him. I've been through that. So I understand it. But it, it so it takes time to get over that. I, I think in just from a cultural point, maybe society, if you, if the default is co-parenting, as you say, co-parenting 101, one, I think you say in the book, it's like it gives you permission to do that too. You know, we kind of sort of have to change the the the, the expectations, I guess. Just yes, co-parenting well, and, is, and co-parenting ourselves. can be many different things to many different people. It doesn't have to be fifty-fifty or fifty or sixty-forty or what you know or seventy-thirty. You sort of as you build up a trust, I think, with each other in this kind of new way of dealing with your kids and your family, uh, it's it, it it sort of works itself out. Um, and as you say, you can be a lot more flexible. I would agree with what you said, but I will challenge something yeah. as you build, you know, like when you say as you build up trust, that's, I feel like that's suggesting that, oh, as the mom trusted dad, no, it's not mom's decision. How it's the, you don't get an upper hand in the co-parenting. That's not the spirit of co-parenting. And frankly, you probably don't, aren't going to get a chance. The courts are changing so quickly. It's 50-50. I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, and I get it because I was traumatized by the idea of my babies being away from me for so long. But that's just not how it's going to go. The dads are equal parents. You don't get to decide if he is a good enough parent. If, it's, if you can prove that he is abusive, that's a whole nother story, and that is a minority of cases, but that's not the presumption. Yeah, I, I don't mean 50-50. I mean that what happens is you find one finds out that sometimes the dad may even end up spending more time with the kids because that works for them is what I'm saying. The, all those right. options open up. It doesn't have, I mean, if you're going to say, well, it has to be 50 you know, 50% they're with me, 50% they're with you. Each couple is different if they have the option to be different, to be unique. That's that, that's what I'm saying. You know, that- yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. And, and as time changes, because life, I mean, I'm here to tell you, you cannot predict what's going to happen. One of you might be having, you know, like your parents become very ill and you have to be with them. And that means what, the kids are with the other parent the vast majority of time. And then the, Two years later, somebody's career takes a turn for better or worse, and they need to invest a lot of time in their business. I mean, anything can happen. And when, if you, it is, you're right. It's a trusting. When you trust that the spirit of this is that you're both looking out for the kids, you're, you're supporting the other parent. That's the, that's the twisted reality of divorce and, and separated families. You still have to be so involved and supportive of the other parent even if you're not married to them anymore or not in a romantic relationship because your lives are so intertwined. I think the difficulty with it, and uh, as, as I remember, it's been a long time, but one of the things was the expectation of I have to get along with my ex. I couldn't get along with him when we were living together, and now I'm so ha- trying to get along and do <laughs> right. it when we're apart, and there's a whole lot of other stuff happening. For instance, boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, you know, you've got other people that you, you know, don't even know who are involved with your children, and there are just a lot of new of issues, and so it's, uh, it's almost like it can be a double whammy you know it's almost like well isn't it just easier to live with him or her oh i know right yeah yeah, right exactly (laughs) trust me i'm here to tell you no it would not (laughs) not (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm here for the Let's Record. And he would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I have to say, since we've been getting along so well the last couple of years, it's really, it's bittersweet. Like, I've known him for 15 years. I mean, he... Nobody knows me better. It's like those old friends. Like, you know, you go back and you hang out with your old friends from high school or college, and you maybe haven't even seen or talked to them in five or ten years. But you kind of pick up. There's that intimacy there that just comes with longevity of the relationship. And he is just one of those people in my life. And he happens to be the parent of my kids, and nobody loves him more than he does and me. You know, we have that connection. But there's also just our relationship, you know, that old friendship that, it's still there. Yeah. Well, familiarity. It's familiar. It's 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 mm-hmm. family. Yeah. Yeah. And like he came to pick up the kids a couple of weeks ago, and I was like running around the apartment trying to get ready, and I like I was literally like in my bathroom with curlers in my hair, and he gave me this funny look. <laughs> I'm like, I could. It was funny, and it was like this. You know, it was a kind of a sweet moment because I wouldn't necessarily let myself be seen like that by just anybody, but he's seen me that and and much and much worse. <laughs> so whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And he said, you look gorgeous. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, it was more like, what the heck? <laughs> so now it's been 15, all right, so 15 years. Um, well, that we've known each other. That God, you've known each other. Yeah. At least, yeah. How old are the, and so how old, how old are the kids now? So they're seven and nine. Seven and nine. Well, I, I think you're at it. I think this is the other thing. I just, we only have a few minutes left, but as the kids go into different stages, things change as well. You know, like now they're mm. seven and nine, they have to be with one, you know, they always have to be with you. Then you get into the middle school age, that's a whole different thing. And then a whole, you know, the, the, parenting, being able to get along and making decisions about what they do or don't do changes because the it really does yeah yeah it really does I mean that's one of the um twisted things about parenthood right like once you think you got it nailed they they grow out of that phase and then you're on to the next challenge and I guess that's true then in co-parenting too right like yeah exactly yeah that's exactly right it's like and I I remember that like we would find these routines like it's all about routines with the kids and you know we figure out a routine that we'd get into our groove as co-parents and all of a sudden they would, the kids would change and grow and they needed something else from us and a new routine. So then we'd be exactly. scrambling. You know, I remember like during the week, their dad really, I, th- I think he really liked it. Like he, before he dropped him off a couple of times a week, he would give them a bath and put them in their pajamas and then drop them off at my house to go to bed. And that's a really sweet ritual. I mean, I remember enjoying that too with my kids, like the, the bedtime bath time thing but then they grew out of it and you know and then they they were too big to be getting a bath from their dad and they take showers in the morning before school so you know it's 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 sort of like I feel like co-parenting outside of you know is a in the non-traditional family it's like kind of like parenting on steroids in a way yeah. you have to think it, it evolves it evolves it's always evolving and then when they're 30 and they want to come back and live with you you can let them live with him that's <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, that we have to end on that note. But well, that's um, the whole thing, though. There's a daddy's house, right? Like you're like, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna kill you because like you're. I'm at my wit's end. But guess what? You're going to daddy's. House. That's right. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been great talking to you this morning. I've really enjoyed it, Emma Johnson. Me too. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, the kick-ass single mom. Love it. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. And just, Emma, give us a website we can go to to get more information about you, the book. Yeah, sure. So the book is The Kick-Ass Single Mom, and it's um, in uh, print, and it's also an audio book. I did the um, the audio for it myself. And okay. then my ground zero is my blog, WealthySingleMommy.com. And then one at- resource I really want to share is I have a closed Facebook group called Millionaire Single Moms, and it's for all moms, all incomes, but single moms. And this is, there's 10,000 women in there, and it's so active, and it's a very positive place. You can't go in there and gripe. You can't mail bash. And I get beautiful messages from women all the time saying that just being surrounded by other positive single moms with big goals, no matter where you are on your journey or what your income is, it's a home for you. And it says, they tell me it changes their lives. Fantastic. Uh, Great. Thanks for sharing. And um, we've got to talk to you in 10 years and see what happens. Yeah, well, I well, my kids will be in college then, so they'll yeah, be right, a lot of show. Exactly. <laughs> All right, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. 